In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now. You're listening to a Frequency Podcast Network production. It's spring on the West Coast. A few cheery, bright yellow daffodils are doing their best to survive heavy spring rains. Once again, I'm attempting to plant flower beds. I'm not being modest here. I'm truly a dreadful gardener. Just ask my neighbors. Just the possibility that something might grow, that a beautiful plant could take root and flourish, keeps me trying. Year after year after year. As I putter around my yard, I think about the little pots and planters that were once arranged outside of one of the Whiskey Creek trailers. Someone was trying to create a little piece of beauty and calm. Despite the terrible crimes I now regularly report on, I'm an optimist. I can't help but look for meaning, for something positive to emerge from the darkness. Reporting on Whiskey Creek has been one of the most frustrating experiences I've ever encountered as a journalist. So little hard information available from authorities. So much fear surrounding the few who have actual knowledge about what happened out there. When I dig into a story like this, a whodunit, I want to know who's responsible for the violence and the death. But I also want to understand the why. And on this front, I believe I found perspectives to help shed a little light. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is a postscript to Whiskey Creek, Island Crime, Season 5. Sean McGrath's encampment out at Whiskey Creek seems to have been a disaster waiting to happen. I make a request to the Ministry of Public Safety and Solicitor General for information regarding the late Sean McGrath's release plan. But I'm told privacy laws prevent BC Corrections from confirming any details related to a specific individual's case management. The response outlines, in general terms, the range of planning and supports that are available and the various resources that could be accessed. However, the response ends with the following caveat. It is important to note that unless a specific location, treatment, or condition is ordered by the court, BC Corrections has no authority over where an individual chooses to reside, nor can they insist that an individual access the supports and services available to them upon release. In McGrath's case, it appears a guy who spent much of his life in and out of jail is left essentially to his own devices out in the woods adjacent to the community of Whiskey Creek. Whether McGrath wanted or tried to turn his life around is not something I can tell you. 
peer support worker Kelly Morris told me she helped Sean get set up in the trailer out of desperation. He had nowhere to go. Meet Steve Pelland. So my name is Stephen Pelland, 42 years old, grew up in British Columbia. I came from a pretty good, loving home. I had wonderful parents. I grew up in a really cool farm and stuff and had a pretty pretty great life. When I was just growing up, for some reason, I, I don't know exactly why, but I just seemed to gravitate towards the troublemakers and started using substances at a pretty young age. And long story short, I ended up addicted to opioids and I started using them when I was about 18 years old. Steve is hanging with a bad crowd. He's become addicted to opioids. And before too long, he's a criminal. My story includes a lot of involvement with the criminal justice system, treatment centers, homeless shelters, all kinds of different stuff. I've been homeless many times as a result of my addiction and gotten in trouble with the law many times. Um, Ended up becoming labeled as a prolific offender for doing a lot of property crimes and a lot of breaches, driving while prohibited, all that kind of stuff, all all um, as a direct result of my chemical dependency and trying, you know, just finding ways and means to, to get and use more drugs. And so I started committing crimes and particularly at the end of it, my thing was cutting catalytic converters and I ended up on the news as a result of it. Steve's circumstance is far from unique. The opioid crisis is an epidemic here as it is in many places. The connection between the public health crisis and drug-fueled crime is at the heart of this story. Helping Steve and others like him reintegrate back into the community is a main focus for the John Howard Society. My name is Manj Tour, Executive Director of John Howard Society in Victoria. I've been here with the organization for five years. I try to imagine what it could have been like for McGrath as he emerged from custody once again. In this postscript to the Whiskey Creek series, Steve and Mange shared their knowledge of post-custody housing, what works, and where the challenges are. Steve is candid about the bad choices he made and the frightening path he had put himself on. You know, my life got pretty crappy. Ended up in and out of jail several times. Finding affordable housing on Vancouver Island is tough. The issue is consistently ranked as one of the most concerning by residents here. Our current political leader, Premier David Eby, describes the housing problem this way. He says it's wicked. And that is true for many. And it's especially true for someone emerging from jail. A lot of the challenges comes from, do they have the right ID even? Do they have the money on hand to even pay for, for a room and board? And typically, who wants to rent to someone that hasn't even come and you haven't even been able to meet yet? So as a private landlord, or even a hotel or shelter at times, like how do you start securing a space when you haven't even met someone that's going to be renting a space or a room from you? So I think those are some of the bigger challenges that we have with people that are leaving truly from custody into the community itself and trying to get housing. One of the biggest things is that most people that are in that lifestyle are on social assistance. And so when you go to try to find a place, you have to get the landlord to sign an intent to rent form, they call it. So basically, the second you pull out that piece of paper and ask the landlord to sign it, they know that you're on welfare. 
And then there's all that stigmatism. Stig- they stigmatize you right away because they think, okay, here's this guy's on welfare. Why is he on welfare? Is he a criminal? Is he doing dope? Is he going to come and trash my place? All those things, those red flags come up and like it's a competitive market. And of course, you're going to be like their last choice. Any, so anyone else who has a job is going to get that place before before a guy who's on or a person who's on welfare, right? A lot of it is the stigma, essentially, of being incarcerated, knowing that these guys may become, are they going to cause problems within their neighborhood or within the property itself? Can they pay their rent? Is the place going to be trashed? A lot of the times, and myself included, I've, I have been that guy who's, you know, someone took a chance and rented to me and then I, and then I damaged their place, don't pay the rent, bring unsavory characters around their house and their family and, and just create a bad situation. So there's, there's reasons why it happens. And I know it's not fair, especially if someone's really wanting to change and stuff, but by far and large, like, you know, people that are in that situation, they're there for a reason. And, and it's, it's, it is a risk, right? So what does it take to get someone like Steve Pelland successfully integrated back into a life outside of prison? How do you make it possible while also keeping the community safe? Most people leaving custody will do so with some kind of post-release plan. But Mange estimates as many as 30% will be released with no fixed address. That's something Steve Pelland can relate to. I was homeless before I went to jail. I was just basically staying on a friend's couch um, with my wife at the time and committing crimes just and using daily and stuff like that. And so I'd, I'd run straight back and get right back involved. Then I'd have no money, no prospects. So I'd, of course, I'd just go straight back to what I was doing before. And that was stealing and lying and cheating, ripping my family off, ripping off whoever I could to get the next fix. So while I was in jail, I, I did have, you know, the potential of getting out released back to homelessness so I I really didn't want that to happen so I reached out while I was in jail. They were able to offer me some support while I was in there and help me to get a release plan together. I requested interviews with the government officials responsible for the transition program here in British Columbia. They seemed interested until I mentioned Whiskey Creek. Then they politely declined the invitation. I get it. No one wants to be associated with that mess. But here's what I've been able to learn from Steve and what I've read about the program. The transition teams provide substance use and mental health support for folks leaving jail. The goal is to help break the cycle of reincarceration, the revolving door, the catch and release. In a moment, Stephen Mange will walk through some of the things, small and large, that need to be in place to make a transition successful. But the very first thing that needed to happen for Steve was this. This last time when I was in, it was about just over two years ago now. It was um, September 18th of 2020 is when I got arrested the last time. I don't know exactly what it was, but I like. I just felt like I was about to turn 40 years old and I actually did turn 40 years old while I was in jail and just kind of started looking back at my life and realizing that, you know, I was just, I was in big trouble and I really wanted to change. Like I had a marriage that had failed and I was kind of estranged from my family and estranged from all the people that loved me. And I'd had, you know, times in my life where I'd been successful and had a number of years clean before. And so while I was in jail, I just really... I don't know what shifted exactly, but I became willing to really get honest about 
where I was at and became willing to, to start asking for some help. What is the, I guess, what makes the difference between someone who, you know, can successfully transition into a home in a community and someone who can't or doesn't? Like, what, what is the difference? You know, the difference is, you know, depending on their life status, like, I mean, if we look at the past trauma of someone that has really been homeless their entire life due to mental health addiction, maybe, and then someone that had previously had housing and now is getting back released back to the same community, they already have that social network and depending on the length of time as well. I think that has a huge factor of building those community connections and supports. Do they have a family? Do they not have a family? Do they have supports in the community that they're being released to or they want to be released to? I think those are major contributors. Do they have employment? Do they have funding even? In Steve's case, after he asked for help, he got it. A release plan helped him transition out of jail and into a recovery home. Had actually picked me up from jail and drove me to the Phoenix Society. So I had that kind of like a continuity of care from the like from the second I was released I was with safe people and they drove me to a safe place and but the, the biggest thing was is that I guess just I was almost like beaten into a state of willingness by just all the pain and consequences from my addiction and I, I was willing to accept the help and that was the biggest change this time. Manch tells me there are small supports that can make a difference like showing someone how to use a self-checkout at Walmart or get a bus pass. But ultimately, it comes down to ensuring that the right kind of housing with the right supports are there when someone is released from prison. If the person isn't suitable to be moving into a private residence, then they shouldn't be without the right supports. Or is it more transitional homes that they need to move into where they're more stabilized and then moving into a more private accommodation? It was really, really instrumental for me to have that support and to have that security of knowing I had somewhere to stay when I got out. The prolific offenders, those like Sean McGrath, have been the focus of countless headlines on the West Coast in recent years. But Man's tour points to quiet stories of success he himself has experienced. The 60-year-old man who, after years of experiencing addiction, homelessness, and crime, has now been clean and housed for years with support. Or the woman with mental illness who ended up stealing and in jail before thriving in a community garden program. And today, Steve Pelland is helping others transition from the place he was once at. Now I get to go back to the jails and pick guys up like me and take them to places like Phoenix and and support them in their journey. I get the sense he can't quite believe the turnaround he's experiencing and how far he has come. I have like a key card that gets me around inside a psychiatric hospital called Colony Farms. It's where like people go for, it's like a forensic psychiatric institution where people that are going to have like um, assessments done to see if they can be held criminally responsible for crimes or not. So it's like a secure facility, and I ha- I'm trusted with like key cards to get around in that facility now. That's where my office is, right? And like two years ago, I was locked up by the same government that gives me these keys now, right? So it's pretty amazing. I'm happy for Steve. He seems sincere in his desire to make something of his life. 
but I find myself wondering just how much support there really is out there for Steve and people like him emerging from incarceration. We don't know our neighbors, what they've done. We don't know how they've even been in custody. If we're giving someone a chance to get back on their feet, that is actually helping the community at a larger, greater extent. Because we're reducing recidivism rates. We're giving someone an opportunity that is going to be able to get back on their feet to be a contributing member of a society again. I think a lot of individuals that we work with, even in custody, they give back to the community. And they just want that opportunity within the community of just trying to, as they get released, how can they give back? And that's a huge factor, I'd say, for the majority of the individuals that we work with. For Steve Pelland, the benefits are very real and very personal. Oh, it's like night and day. Like, I'll just give you an example. Like, I just took, celebrated my two years sobriety, two years clean a couple weeks ago. It was actually, it happened to be on my birthday. And uh, this year, my whole family came to it. Like, my parents are divorced, but they, and they both have cancer right now, but they still made it out to my, to my two-year cake. My brother, who didn't used to talk to me and didn't trust me at all, came out with his two, with my niece and nephew. My, two of my daughters came out there. And I had like a whole room full of people that were there to support me and that care about me. And like two years ago, I literally walked into Phoenix Society with like a garbage bag of dirty clothes and an ankle monitor on my foot. That's how, and like my family didn't trust me. They didn't, like I wasn't welcome at their homes. I had no job, I was in debt. Man's tour sees the wider societal upside. I think the biggest impact, they're not gonna be a burden on the system. And once they have these pieces in place, such as, like I said, housing, employment, and food, they, you know, there's going to be less visits to the hospital. There's going to be less visits with police interaction. I think those are the kind of factors that we start to look at that, that are going to be benefits of supporting individuals that have a criminal record. Still, Manj is not blind to the impacts the prolific offenders have in communities and how the attitudes are hardening. How they feel is legit because if, I think if you're seeing constantly all the different pieces that are happening, let it be stolen property or all those different pieces. I think the bigger question it becomes is why is that happening in their neighborhood or in their communities? And I think we start looking at, you know, the lack of services that, that are actually offered. Steve agrees services to support transitioning offenders are key. But in his own experience, he believes none of the change would have been possible if he didn't shift his own thinking. For so many years, I felt like everyone was out to get me, like probation officers, the police, uh, even treatment centers, like all, any like authority and stuff. Just for some reason, the addict part of my brain told me that I was like being victimized. And, but the truth was that I was victimizing people and I was on the take and I was being a taker and I was being so selfish all the time. And that like I had to kind of look at my life through a different lens and, and kind of just see the truth. And the only way that I was able to do that or became willing to do that was from experiencing like intense amounts of emotional and physical pain just from all the like from the consequences of my actions. And I, I, I nowadays I try to make other people aware of that before they have to go through all the stuff I went through. So that would be the biggest thing is just to just to let people help and just to give it a, a, an honest chance. I would just challenge people to 
to put that thinking aside and just trust the process, right? And to just do the next right thing. What if it was one of our family members? What would we do if it was one of our family and friends? Would we try to provide them with the right supports or try to guide them in the right direction? I think that's the approach that we have to start taking as a community. That transition between custody into the community is it needs to be addressed, especially with individuals with complex needs and care. Otherwise, we're going to ha- keep having this revolving door. In the fall of 2022, the BC government announced that they had doubled the support for those struggling with mental health and substance use as they leave jail behind. Community transition teams are now connected to all of the province's correctional centres. It's too early to know what impact this will have. But Steve's experience suggests this could be a lifesaver. And perhaps this represents the best chance we have of preventing another Whiskey Creek from happening again. I'm Laura Palmer, and this is a postscript to Whiskey Creek, Island Crime, Season 5. In 2007, TV network CBS dropped 40 kids in the middle of the New Mexico desert as part of a brand new reality show. These kids would have to build their own society from scratch. And if this sounds like Lord of the Flies to you, well, it was meant to. We were on this mission together. We were going to prove to the world that we could make a better society than adults could. I'm Josh Gwynn, and I want to know what this wild TV experiment was really about. Split Screen, Kid Nation, a six-part podcast from CBC. Available now.